0: Well, good morning. good morning. I'm so glad to see everybody. You found your way. I keep thinking there's going to be lost people, but I put big I put signs up with red tape all around them at Williams, so hopefully people will find their way over here. So good to see you all on New Year's Eve, especially. I didn't. I thought I might be preaching to three of you, but look, you're all here. Big happy family. I love it. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation 19, Revelation chapter 19, um, Revelation being at the very end of the Bible, the last book in the Bible. This is almost... The last chapter in the Bible that we're going to cover cover today. Um, just so thankful that you're all here. Um, we're going to be wrapping up our series that we'll talk about here in a second. Today, um, next week, if you hadn't heard yet, we're going to be doing a series on prayer. And I can't wait to do that series. I can't wait to um, see what God's going to do through that series. So we're really pumped. Um, all right, so can can I say Happy New Year? Can you say that today? Happy New Year. I'm gonna say it anyway. Happy New Year. Like I know we're like 12 hours out or whatever, but um, um Happy New Year. I'm so glad to see you guys today. And so, um, since we're almost to the new year, I've got a New Year's resolution for everybody in the room. Um, especially if you haven't already done this, it's now on your list of New Year's resolution. Um, how many of you have seen The Princess Bride? Raise your hand. I knew Ethan wouldn't raise his hand. I was like, that's the least shocking thing ever. So kids, kids right here, right? Harrison, you paying attention? Gavin, are you still a kid? You're like, kind of that sweet shake. Yep. Young men in the room, right? Hey, look up here. If you haven't seen Princess Bride yet, after the sermon, you were to go talk to your parents and say, why haven't you shown me Princess Bride yet? Right? Princess Bride. I mean, I, I don't think you can argue. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. I've met one person that just didn't like it. I, I can understand people not, ma- not loving it. No, I don't get it. But like I said, I don't really like that movie. And I was automatically suspicious of that person. If someone says they do like Princess Bride, be careful, right? Be careful. This is from your, your pastor. But anyway, um, Harrison, you haven't seen it, right? Ethan, I know it's not your thing. Be a good dad. Let him watch Princess Bride. Princess <laughs> Bride. No, it's, it is fantasy, so, you know, but um, you'll love it. I think you'll, think you'll actually love it. It's just one of those things when you watch it, you get it, and you know, for most of us, right? It's just great. And um, I think it comes down to that thing that there's something in all of us that just longs to see evil overcome, right? Longs to see the bad guy get his... Right? Sometimes we take that too far. We watch movies like Taken. Don't watch Taken. Come on. Like, that's revenge. That's bad. we love to see the bad guy get justice and the person win. And and I know this is not popular in our culture right now, but there's something also that longs to see the bride or the princess. Princess. What is the princess bride? Princess or the bride or the the person that we love so much who's in danger be saved. Right? We love to see that person who can't save themselves be saved. I'm going to argue today that that feeling of longing to see evil justice come to evil and that person who can't save himself be saved is is just hardwired into us, right? It's literally who we are. Now, I, I know I started with Princess Bride, but if you weren't here the last couple weeks, what we've been in is a three week series that we're calling Advent. And if you don't come from a churchy background, Advent just means the arrival or the coming, and it refers to Jesus Christ coming as a baby, or as the Savior of the world, being born in a manger in the most humble way possible, so that He might come down and rescue us. Right. So we really spent two weeks talking about how Christ came to this earth, right, in the form of, ba- of a baby, and as we saw in Matthew one, to save us from our sins. Right. That we couldn't save ourselves from our sins, so Jesus came, literally, be God born as a man, so that He might rescue us from our sins. Once He Once he was raised up, but maybe even more importantly, that's what we think Jesus did. And he did. That's why Jesus went to the cross and all that. But maybe more importantly, Jesus came to begin to restore to us what was lost all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That's what TJ talked to us about. And what was lost in the Garden of Eden because of our sin, because of our unholiness, was the presence of God. That was the real tragedy of the garden. Sin came to the world, yes, and suffering and pain and death and all those things, but we lost what, the, what the really is the theme of this series is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel literally translates as God with us. We lost God with us. And so really the whole story of the Bible, and even, even the story of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, is the, is the story of God, one step at a time, restoring his presence among us. God being with us again. Now, what we said the last couple weeks is that God has already done that for those of us who believe, at least in some way, right? Jesus Christ came. He was perfect. He was righteous. He died on the cross. And we have been forgiven for our sins. We've seen sin and death have been conquered. And so now Jesus Christ not only literally came to this earth to be with us, right? But then after he died and was resurrected and ascended back into heaven, he sent us the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit now dwells with us. So God is with us, right? God is with us. Praise God for that. That's what Jesus Christ did. That's maybe the most amazing thing. Now, all that being said, though, even though that's true, is God still really with us right now in the same way that he was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Right? Do do we literally get to talk and converse with and walk with God the way that they got to walk with God? I think the the obvious answer is, is no, right? Not in that way. We don't literally converse with God—a back-and-forth conversation—in the way that they got to have a back-and-forth. So, although we celebrate Christmas time, and we should, and praise God that God came, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, even that is a foreshadowing, is a is a taste, is a reflection of what is promised to come, of what will come. That's why we can't just settle for talking about the first advent, the first coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ at Christmas time. Yes, praise God for it. Well, that was last week. But we also have to talk about and rejoice over the fact that there's going to be a second advent. There's going to be a second time that Jesus Christ is going to come for his people, that he's going to arrive here again. Another time that we will shout and praise and see the coming of the Savior. But this time, the word Emmanuel is going to take on a much fuller, much deeper meaning. Because of what it will equate to. So if we're going to talk about the day that Jesus Christ is going to come once again. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, he's going to come once again. And when Jesus Christ comes again, he is going to conquer sin and death and Satan and, and pain and suffering and all those things forevermore. We're going to go back to like the way it was in the Garden of Eden, but even better. And Jesus is going to bring the new heaven and the new earth. And it's going to be heaven and a celebration and perfection forever. Yes and, yes and amen. So if if we're going to talk about that, about what the second advent really means for us who believe, well, it just makes sense to start in the book of Revelation, right? So we're in the book of Revelation this morning. Like I said, basically the, the third to last chapter of the Bible. So the, those of you that love this book, no, listen, we are not going to get into all the what-ifs of the book of Revelation today. Right? We'll do that eventually. Eventually we are going to walk through the book of Revelation. I'm praying about it right now. I'm just I'm preparing... For my heart and the arguments and the, the theories and everything else that everybody thinks about the book of Revelation, that day will come, right? That day will come. I've been thinking about it now. But today, what we're not going to get hung up on that. What we're going to do today is just look at that day, the second advent of Christ, and what that's going to mean for us, for those, for those of us who actually love Jesus Christ, who, who worship Jesus Christ as our Savior. So let's look at that together today. We'll be in Revelation 19, verse 6. And I think what it's going to do, it's going to point us back to that thing I said is hardwired into us. We're going to see that today in Revelation 19. So we're going to read in verse 6. We'll read through verse 9, and then we'll come back and we'll look at it kind of verse by verse. So read with me in Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I love that so much. And so, here's what I'm going to do. This is actually a really big thing. We've looked at this passage before and looked at it again, but also, Tony was supposed to be here preaching today. Did you guys know that? But his family is literally sick for the ninth week in a row. They thought they were finally over it. Lily is throwing up. And so, they, they couldn't be here. And they had the flu this week, right? So, it's a disaster. And so not only was this kind of last minute for me, but this is a really big deal, and I want to communicate it well, but I also want to pray for Tony and his family, and Jerome's in the hospital. So I want to take a little bit of time for prayer before we we jump into and start breaking down this passage. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are tremendously good. We are so thankful to be here today to worship you. But God, just what I talked about today is a reflection of although you are good and you're amazing and your gifts are good, this life is also really hard because of the fall, because of sin, because of everything that happened. There is sickness and suffering and pain in this world. So first and foremost, I want to pray for those who have been sick, who are struggling. God, I pray you'd be with them, you'd encourage them, you'd comfort them, and particularly the persons today who have literally been in nine weeks of sickness and who are tired. They are so worn down. God, I know there's other families in this room that feel the same. That you'd be with them and encourage them and give them strength in their weakness. I pray for Jerome, who's who's been in the hospital. That like God, that you'd be with him and be with the doctors, helping to figure out what's going on with him. I pray for my sister, who just got out of surgery, and all those, all the other people in this room and our family members who are sick and are suffering, who have, even some of those who have lost hope, who don't understand. God, you are bigger than all of those things, and so God, I pray that you'd be the God of hope, of joy, and of comfort. And as you say in your Word, God, help us to be people who are comforted by you, so that we might comfort those who need to be comforted, because if, at some point, God, it'll be it'll be our turn. It'll be our turn to struggle and need your comfort and the comfort of those around us. And so, God, I pray that your word would speak true to us today and give us the encouragement we need and point us to you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that being said, we kind of read through our passage today. It's an awesome passage, but let's go back and we're going to read again. Let's read verse 6. And halfway through verse 7. So Revelation 19, 6 is this. One more time. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him Glory. Let's stop there. So, if you don't, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, it was written by the apostle John, right? One of the guys that hung out with Jesus, and he got this vision from an angel to write these things, right? He got, and he saw these things, and that's where this comes from. And what they're celebrating right now is Jesus Christ has returned, the second advent we talked about. He's arrived. He's conquered Satan, he's conquered death, he's conquered evil, he's conquered pain, he's conquered suffering. And now all of heaven is rejoicing. All of heaven has waited for this moment. And so they're all gathered together and they're rejoicing. And I love how it's described because it says it's like the sound of of rushing, roaring water. Have you ever been like at the ocean when the the waves break against the rocks? Or maybe been like at a, a major river where there's a waterfall? That sound just fills everything, doesn't it? It just roars. It's like it fills up the whole world. Or if you've ever been next to a lightning strike and the thunder that follows, right? It almost feels like it can, it can knock you down. The sound is so powerful, right? It just fills all of the world. But that's what this is. Like, picture it that way. The multitude of heaven is crying out in a way that fills everything. And they cry out this word, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you know that? I didn't know this until I, I read it. That this is the only place in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used in the book of Revelation. It's used in the Old Testament. I just thought it was interesting. But do you know what that word means? It literally means praise Yahweh. It's a shout of praise to God. That's, what that, that's all that word means. So when we sing hallelujah in songs and you just kind of do it because you've done it forever. If you've been in church, it means it's just a shout of praise to God. So this is saying that. All of heaven is now rejoicing, not just because Satan and sin and death and pain have all been defeated once and for all, but because of what it means beyond that and what does it mean. One, now this seems like an obvious, what it tells us is that our God reigns. Now again, for those of us who are Christians who grew up this way, yeah, obviously God reigns. But it's what that actually means. It means that the Almighty has done what he promised he would do. That all the things he said were going to happen have happened. And as we've just kind of talked about in our prayer, look, this life is crazy, isn't it? And sometimes things just get hard. Sometimes things we did not expect happen. Sometimes we get a phone call or a diagnosis and everything we thought our life would be changes. All the control that we felt like we had over our life crumbles to the ground. One phone call, one moment, one bad thing, one, di- one diagnosis. I don't want to make a thing of it today, but as many of you know, like, my sister just had cancer surgery on Friday. Our family's just going along, and everything is normal. One diagnosis comes, and then everything is now different for our family. And praise God, the surgery went well. Praise God with me that the surgery went well. I'm so excited. But, you know, once you get cancer, you just don't know what your future is from that point forward, right? Most of us have been through that in one way or another. Like, we think we have control in this life. We think we've got things under control. Even, like, sometimes it feels completely out of control, but that moment we feel like we have... We feel like we have control. Something happens and rips it all away. Praise God that he reigns. That is, he is in control. That we don't depend on ourselves to make it through. But we know that our God is in control of everything. So we don't have to fear. That our God will keep every one of his promises. That He'll, he'll all of his predictions and prophecies will come true. Every one of his words will come true and will be true by the end. So many of them have been fulfilled in Christ, but there's so many to come so we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to give in, give in to degree. for our God reigns. That's really what they're celebrating when they're crying out. Like This just proves everything God ever said. The enemy has been conquered. That's what they're celebrating in Revelation 19. All of the heavens rejoicing and giving glory to God. And here's the thing, we're going to do the same thing on that day. For those of us that believe, we'll be right there with all the multitude of heaven crying out to God, praising Him for who He has. But this is a not-yet moment for us, right? We're, I don't know if you ever heard me use the phrase, already, not yet. This is a not yet. That hasn't happened yet. We're looking forward to it. But in a lot of ways, this has also already happened for us, hasn't it? Like, we're already praising God for the things that He has. Jesus Christ has already come. He's already conquered the power of sin and death. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, because he was righteous, meaning he was perfect, meaning he was right, that's why he could go to the cross for all of our sins. We all fall short to the power of sin, don't we? Like we all have given into sin at some point, but Jesus never did. So he could go to the cross and die as the perfect sacrifice for us, take all of our sin on himself because he was perfect, showing us that sin had no control over him. Now that sin and that evil killed him, but then what happened? He raised from the dead three days later, showing that sin and death had no power over him. And so now he's saying, if you are in me, sin and death have no power over you. Yes, you might give into some sin sometimes, but sin is not who you are. I've given you the strength. The Holy Spirit in you has given you the strength to defeat sin and death. What is death for you? Because you're not really going to die because you're going to be resurrected in eternity. Death has been conquered. So we celebrate now with all of heaven that this has already happened. But there is still a better promise to come. There is still a better day to come. <laughs> As if Christ coming once wasn't good enough, he's going to come come again. And this time it will be even better than the last time for those of us that have repented of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ. But our passage doesn't just tell us that they rejoice and that they gave God glory and that we will do the same. It doesn't, it doesn't just say that and then give us kind of vague reasons. It tells us exactly why we should be celebrating, why, why all of heaven and the multitude are celebrating. Read the second half of verse 7 again. So I'm just going to read verse 7 one more time, but pay attention to the second half of verse 7 in particular. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. His bride has made herself ready. So, this is a topic we've looked at before. TJ, I think this is the passage you preached not that long ago, wasn't it? Right? Yeah. Do what? The first day of this year, right here. You preached this passage the first day of this year. Well, the first and last day of the year, you're going to get this passage. (laughs) I didn't realize that, right? But it's one I go. I come back to this passage. I come back to Revelation 21 and 22 like all the time because they're just so good. So we've looked at this topic before, but we are the bride of Christ, right? That's how scripture describes the church, right? We are the bride of Christ. But how often have you really dwelled on that language? That we're his bride? Because what this is saying is when Jesus returns for his second advent, for the second time, our marriage with Christ, it's, here is the lamb. Jesus is described as the lamb of God, the sacrifice that atoned for all of our sins, right? Jesus, the lamb of God. The second advent will be that he has officially come once and for all and everything that's happened before then is just a reflection of that moment. But even our marriages are a reflection of this moment when Jesus Christ comes and the marriage is complete. Because I don't I don't know if you caught on to this, but the language that it uses in this passage is almost romantic. Did you notice that? Is it weird to talk about how like a romantic love between God and his church, but this this language here really is almost romantic? Because I know that, that most of us who think about this way, we think about, our, uh, think about God, and that we think about God, how he loves us as his children, right? Because he is a father, and he's a good father, and he does love his children, and we should think about it that way. But how often do you think about God like this, like in a romantic type of love? Because <clears throat> I want you to remember, we clearly see in passages like Ephesians 5. Right? Ephesians 5 is one of, the most, one of the most famous marriage passages in the Bible. If you've never read Ephesians 5 and you're married or want to be married or ever thinking about marriage, it's a great passage to know and really study. But in the, one of the most famous marriage passages in the New Testament, our marriage is described as a reflection of what our relationship with Jesus Christ is. That our marriages were almost meant, always, always meant to reflect our relationship with Jesus. You know how the Bible says that when you get married, you become one with the other person. You become one spirit. That is how the Bible describes our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we become one spirit with him. We become one with him and that we have joy and love and even intimacy in that relationship. And when I say intimacy, I mean closeness, as close as any people can become. Intimacy in marriage is meant to be emotional, spiritual, and physical. Meaning, all of you is as intimate with this person as as you possibly can be on this planet. planet. That's what our marriages are meant to reflect in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And what we will completely have when the new heaven and the new earth comes. We'll be one with Christ in a reflection that is a bride with her husband. And I know that can sound weird in the wrong context. But it even says that his bride, us, the church, have made ourselves ready for our husband. Have you ever thought about that phrasing? What it means for a, a wife to make herself ready for her husband when they get married? Listen, that is romantic language. That is partner language. But how do we make ourselves ready for Jesus Christ? And how we make ourselves ready for him is by believing in him by having faith in him and letting his righteousness cover us, make us righteous, make us pure for him, to make us pure for him. Because listen, Jesus is, no this is not surprising to any of you, but Jesus is holy. He is blameless. He is pure. He is righteous. And as happened in the garden of Eden, we could never be in his presence because, not, not fully forever because his bride, before we know him, we are sinful. So Jesus came for his bride, didn't he? Listen, this is what we love in all these stories. About the the person who saves the other person who can't save themselves. We could not save ourselves. We were lost to sin. We were lost to death. But Jesus Christ came for his bride. He came to rescue us because we could never rescue ourselves. We couldn't do enough to rescue ourselves, so he came. In the first advent, that's what he accomplished. What we can never do for ourselves. Forgiveness. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter who we think we are, Jesus Christ thought we were worth saving, so he came. And he did that first and foremost for his glory. Listen, it gives God glory to rescue sinners. Just us, to see those who don't deserve rescuing who have betrayed him, who have lied, who have stole, who have murdered, who have committed adultery, who have done all the things, but God come and say, listen, I love you, and I will rescue you. Believe in me, and you can have my grace, and my mercy, and my forgiveness. And when people who don't deserve it are saved, they're rescued, they're forgiven, it just displays God's glory to the world. It displays how good he really is, and what he's willing to do. And so, it's this beautiful display of God's glory. So that's primarily why Jesus came. But secondarily, he did this And this should blow our minds simply because he came and redeemed us simply because he longs to be with us. I'm going to say this a lot during this sermon, but do you see God that way? That he he came because he longs. Listen, when I say us, don't even think, like Paul uses this language, so it's okay. He came because he longs to be with you. Not this general you, but you. And not with a simple Love. But the kind of love that a husband has for his brand new bride, when he looks at her and is so in love with her, and he so badly wants to be with her and know her in every way. That's what God wants for you. He already knows you in every way. He wants you to know him in every way. That's why I love the phrasing of verse 8 so much. Go back to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and read verse 8 again. Actually, no, let's read the second half of verse. Second half of verse 7 again and verse 8. I want to see it again. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, in that passage, it says that we have made ourselves ready ready for Christ. Like in verse 7, right? We have made ourselves ready for Christ. And we have. And that we've made ourselves ready by believing in him, by following him, by having faith in him and letting his righteousness and his goodness transform us. But what I love in this passage is it says, it's basically telling us that in the end, even though it says that we made ourselves ready, it wasn't our doing at all. But it was Christ who did the right, the right to be called the bride of Christ. The ability to walk and be righteous enough for Christ was granted to us. It was granted to us. As Ephesians 2 says, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift. So no one can brag. No one can boast. No one can think they're good enough on their own. And what a relief that is. On the surface, it sounds like, no, like this feeling like, well, no, like I believe, and I have faith. Yes, you believe, but the only reason you could even believe is because God wanted you to believe, because God believes in you, because God has granted this to you. And what a relief that is, because we don't have to try to be good enough for God. We don't have to try to do enough for God to love us or want us. He wants you. He loves you just because He does, because He saw you and said, I want to extend my grace to you because I love you. It takes the pressure off of trying to be good enough. He just granted it to us because He loves us. And so it says in this passage, the fine linen was the righteous deeds of the saint. But I want you to understand, the fine linen is really the righteousness of Christ that covers us. That ugliness of sin has now been covered by the righteousness of Christ. Meaning that God's glory can now literally shine through us, can radiate in us. We can take the glory of God that is now in us, the righteousness of Christ that now covers us into the world. And we can shine the brightness, the light of who he is into a dark world. And so it's now we are capable of doing things that are righteous in God's eyes. If we don't know Jesus Christ, our righteousness in some way is always selfish, is always sinful, is always about us. But once we're in Jesus Christ, we can go out and actually do deeds that bring glory to God. Because we're covered by his righteousness. And so that linen is the righteous deeds because when we go out and we use the gifts that God gave us, and we use it for his glory, and because we're faithful to him, it brings glory to God, it radiates his glory. It displays to the world that we are Christ's, that we are his. And I love that. And then finally in verse 9, I love how we kind of come to a close in our passage today. Look at verse 9 again. So we have the fact that we are married to Jesus Christ, right? He is our husband and we are his bride and heaven will be a reflection of this. But look at verse 9, what else it says. And the angel said to me, remember this is John, an angel is talking to him, giving him this vision. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So this idea of heaven being like a marriage supper or this like great banquet runs all the way through the Bible. Right from be, for almost from beginning to end, Like it talks about heaven, it talks about it as this like big, great, amazing banquet. Listen, like, what's better? Like, listen, what's better in this world than having the people that you love the most around you, gathering together and eating together? And hear me, I'm not talking about on the days when you've worked a 12-hour day and you come home and you're exhausted and you don't want to talk to anybody. No, I'm not talking. About, I'm talking about on those days when you are refreshed, when you are rested on those days when you're just filled with thankfulness and joy, what is better than sitting around with your favorite people in the world and laughing and joking and talking and telling stories and and listen, sharing good food? What's better than sharing good food with people that you love and sharing your favorite drinks and just being together? It is the best. Solomon said it was the best in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to back him up on that. Do you know what I do for my birthday now? My birthday, I said, I don't want gifts anymore. I want a gift certificate to Kai. You know what Kai is? It's a sushi place. My family, we love sushi. It might be our favorite. I don't know. Like i got a lot of favorites, but it's, it's probably, sushi is probably my favorite thing in the world. So now for my birthday, we can't afford really to eat at Kai. Well, almost never, but I'll get a gift certificate from my family. And you know what we'll do? We'll go to Kai and we will feel, fill the whole table with sushi. <laughs> it is Awesome. I look down. Like I take pictures and I send it to Brett or something else, I'm like, look at this table full of sushi. Sushi makes me happy. Sushi makes me glorify God. Right, but we go with the family and what we do is everybody just starts picking whatever they want. We're all sharing all of the food. Like, oh my gosh, this was amazing. Have you tried this? Have you tried that one yet? No, let me try that one. And we just sit there and we eat and we laugh and we have a good time and it's one of my favorite days of the year. Is it not? My, my daughter's just like, mm-hmm. Now how simple is that? Is that, is that a complicated thing? There is something about being with people that you love, your, your favorite people in the world, and sharing food together, and being together, and being excited about it together. It's an amazing thing. Church, are you feeling this yet? D- do you feel it yet? Because this, what we're talking about today are profound theological truths, but it's also meant to just absolutely stir something inside of you. This is an emotional thing, and it's also a very logical theolo- theological thing. Because here, here's the truth. We don't have to lie. I know it's hard for most of us to even begin to imagine what eternity is going to be like with God. Right? It's hard to live in the light of eternity, in the light of heaven every day. But, but what if we imagined it like this? Like what we've been talking about. Like as this amazing banquet where all the people we love most in the world are, are sharing and laughing and eating the best food that we've ever had, the best drinks we've ever had, and just celebrating And then let me add to that, that picture. Let's go back to where we were. I want you to now think about the most in love that you've ever been in your whole life. For me, that's right now. For me, that's right now. But seriously, that feeling of love. I'm not talking about lust. I'm not talking about obsession with someone, right, when you get obsessed with someone. I'm talking about the most in love that you've ever been. Right, How wonderfully consuming it is Right, when you're truly in love with someone. Now combine that, that feeling of being mo- the most in love you've ever been with the best meal, with the best people that you've ever had. Put those things together. This is how God is describing heaven. Can you imagine that? Now I also, I think, well, I think we get heaven wrong because I've said this before, but we need to be reminded of it. In heaven, you will love everyone more than you've ever loved anyone. Can you wrap your mind around that? In heaven, we are the family of God. All nations from everywhere, we're all united in our love for Jesus Christ. Love will be absolutely perfected in heaven. We'll be with our husband, Jesus Christ, fully united with him forever and his family. And so we're going to be at this banquet, at this celebration, at this party, and more in love with everyone around us, Jesus Christ, God in particular, but everyone around us. we're going to love them and want to be with them and enjoy them more than we've ever loved or enjoyed anybody at any point in our entire lives. That's heaven. Not floating on some stupid cloud with a harp. But real bodies, a real city of God real banquets with the best food, like the food that God intended food to be, not corrupted by anything, with people that we absolutely love, enjoying God and his people and the family forever. This is how God describes eternity. And he's trying to get us to see, to understand, to grasp just how good he is and just what he has waiting for us. Because this shows just how much he loves us and how just, just dearly he longs to be with us. Let me ask you for a second. Is this how you, is this how you imagine forever with God? Is this how you picture eternity? I just, I just wonder if this is how we imagine our God. If he's some distant figure that's telling us what to do and is perpetually disappointed in us. Or he's this God that is promising us. Such amazing things, because he longs to, like, in the closest way he could possibly be, be with us. I want to cl- I want to close with one more passage today, and honestly, we're not going to spend much time on it at all. I just want this passage to just kind of wash over you. So, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the Book of Isaiah. Isaiah is right in the middle, almost dead center in your Bible, a little past a little past the middle. We're going to be in Isaiah 62. And for those of you, again, that the Bible may be a little bit newer for, let me kind of explain to you the way the prophets work. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and prophets literally spoke the words of God. We don't have prophets like that anymore. Why don't we have prophets like that anymore? Say the the, the most common church word possible here. Jesus. Like, Jesus is the prophet. He actually speaks the words of God because he is God, right? Jesus spoke, and God spoke. But the prophets spoke on behalf of God. Right? So this guy Isaiah wrote this book of prophecy about 700, almost 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. And so the prophets would often do this kind of weird thing if you're unfamiliar with it. They would, they would predict what was going to happen in the near future, but often, not always, but often that near future prediction was also pointing to an end prediction. So let me give you an example. It's going to be in our passage today. When the Bible, when the Old Testament, when the prophets talk about the city of Zion. Often they are talking about Jerusalem in Israel, right? The, and, and in Jerusalem, remember, the temple was there. So God's presence was in the temple, not really with them the way he's with us now. But in, in that way, God was, God's presence was in the temple. So God was with them in the city of Zion. You can also say the city of Jerusalem. So it meant right then. And so Zion, when he says, I'm going to restore Zion, uh, eventually Israel ended up in exile in Babylon. Like they, they got captured and God was promising, hey, I'm going to bring you back to the city of Zion, to the city of Jerusalem. So it meant near future. But it also pointed to a greater future. Because when the Bible talks about Zion, what it's really talking about, what it's really pointing to, what it's, the real fulfillment is the city we're going to live in with God. Revelation tells us that God is going to literally, a city from heaven is going to come down, new heaven and new earth, and we're going to dwell with God in his city forever. So Zion really represents being with God in his presence. So Zion can mean the actual city, but Zion can also mean the people. Because in Scripture, those things all just kind of go together. The marriage of the Lamb means we're going to be with God in the place that He promised, with Him, with each other forevermore. So when it, in this passage, it's going to kind of jump between the people and the land. Well, really, in this passage, it's kind of the same thing. It's the fulfillment of being with God in His place forever. Does that make sense? So this is an already near future, not yet distant future kind of passage. So let's look at it. In Isaiah 62, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And it says, for Zion's sake. And really, he's really talking about the people. Also the city, but really the people. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I love that, right? God is saying there, for the sake of my people, I will not be silent. I, will, I, I love them so much, I am going to speak on their behalf. I'm going to tell you what I think of my people. I just love it. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Listen to this. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem, a gem, like a royal gem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. Here's the new name it talked about. But you shall be called My delight is in her, in Zion, in the bride, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Meaning we are married to Christ and his land in the place that he always promised us. For as a young man marries a young woman. Here's marriage language again, right? For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Church, look at what God wants to do for you and in you and through you. He wants to give you so much of His goodness that a sinful world can't help but take notice, can't help but see how you radiate the goodness, the brightness, the righteousness, the goodness of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he also wants to do so much good for you. Can I ask you again, is this how you see God, church? When you picture God, when you pray to God, when you talk to God, is this what you think of and see? As the God that sees you as the crown of his beauty? As the crown of beauty, God, that he sees you as beautiful? That he sees you as like the royal, invaluable jewel in his crown? Church, do you see God as the God who delights in you simply because you are you? Listen, again, not the up here you. You, that he delights in you because you were created in his image in love. He delights in you. Do you see a God, do you think about God as a God who rejoices over you? Listen, has joy in you. Yes, you fail, yes, you sin, yes, you mess up, but despite all that, and particularly in Christ, he is joyful because of you. He is happy because of you. He delights in you. I think so often we think of Christ as this like super serious guy. I just picture him as laughing and joking and delighting all of the disciples, even though like the rest of us, they were just such idiots at times, right? We're all idiots at times. That's why Jesus Christ had to come save us. But I I think Jesus laughed and and, and talked and and shared food and just had joy with all the disciples much more than what we picture. This is who God is. This is how heaven is described because this is who our God is. None of this takes away from the fact that God hates sin. None of this takes away from the fact that we are to be obedient and walk in holiness and take our sins seriously. God doesn't just love us and rejoice in us so sin is okay. It's not okay. But listen, in your marriage, if you have a good marriage, are you obedient to what your spouse wants simply so you don't get in trouble? Is that a healthy marriage? No, but like you can't cheat on your wife or your husband. You have to obey that rule of your marriage because you love them. Like That's something you can't do, but you do it because you're faithful to them because you love them. This is about faithfulness. Not necessarily, obedience comes with faithfulness, but we think of God as the God we have to be obedient to and not sin. Yes and amen, but it comes from faithfulness. This is a relationship, and it's described as a marriage relationship. I'm faithful to my wife because I love her. I do all the things that is expected of me because I love her and I want her. God is faithful to you. And he wants you to be faithful to him. And in that faithfulness, all these other things will come when you truly understand who you are, but more importantly, who he is. Faithfulness. Listen, this is, this is the greatest love story ever told. This is the thing in us that longs for that story. All the stories that have have been poured out of thousands if not millions of writers throughout the history of the world were all breathed out because of this. The thing in us that longs to see evil overcome, longs to see evil conquered, loves, longs to see bad people get justice, and the part of us that loves to see the person who can't save themselves that we love so much, that person that is loved so dearly but can't save himself be rescued by someone who can rescue them. It's because we're all caught up in the same story. We're all caught up in the story because it's been the story from the birth of creation, for the whole world, all up, all the way up until now. It's the greatest love story ever told. And that's why it oozes out of us. It's hardwired into us. It's why we can't help like the Princess Bride unless something is wrong with you. <laughs> Seriously, something's wrong with you. Watch it. love it. It's so good. <laughs> Listen, I don't want everyone like I always want to come back to you man, this life is hard. To say all these things, it's almost to ignore that life gets hard and it's hard to see these things. Sometimes it's really hard to see these things and walk in these things. So yes, life is hard. Yes, we don't always understand what is happening. But man, those things are just a moment in time compared to what God is promising. And as ridiculously cheesy as this sounds. And if you go out there and tell people I said this, I won't deny it, but I won't be happy about it. But here's the thing. Happily ever after is a real thing. Happily ever after is a real thing. God wants you to be happy with him forever. Rejoice with him forever. Have the best things with him forever. And Wesley and Buttercup have nothing on the love story that you are caught up in. That's Princess. (laughs) Wesley and Buttercup have nothing on the love that God has for you. So church, at the end of this Christmas season going into the new year, this is the hope and the joy that we live in, that the second advent of Christ will come. And it means everything for those of us who believe. For those of us who don't believe that second advent of Christ is going to be a terrifying day, that is going to be the day when a time of grace and mercy and patience and long-suffering from God are over, where he will separate those who love him for those who, listen, chose not to love him. He'll you know, separate them forever on that day. That is a terrifying day for those who don't believe. But for those of us who, who do believe, it will be the greatest day and into the greatest eternity that we could even possibly imagine. It's going to be a party. It's going to be a banquet, right? A banquet is a party. It's going to be a party. It's going to be the the full consummation of our marriage to Jesus Christ. It's going to be beautiful because we're going to be with Christ forever. And he is going, you are going to be his and he is going to be yours. Because Christ has already accomplished and will accomplish everything that his bride needs. Let us live for that day, church. Let's pray.